Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. I am Deacon Sabatino Carnazzo, our speaker this evening. I uh, was born in Pittsburgh as the fourth of six children. He graduated from the University of Virginia in 1994 with a degree in history. Before discerning his vocation to the priesthood, Father taught high school and worked in the U.S. Senate. In 1999, he entered St. Charles Borromeo Seminary and continued his formation at the Pontifical North American College and the Angelicum in Rome. He was ordained to the priesthood at the Cathedral of St. Thomas More in Arlington in 2005. He has served at St. Mary's in Alexandria, St. James in Falls Church, and many of your followers are here tonight devotedly. From 2010 to 2012, Father Hanley served as secretary to Bishop Laverde, and in 2012, just this past June, he began full-time studies at Dominican House of Studies in Washington, D.C. Please join me in welcoming Father Hanley. Thank you. Thank you. It's a great blessing to be here with you all today, and We'll begin with a prayer. I pray that here the Holy Spirit will be here, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of love, who will help us to understand God more, understand Him more, and because of understanding and knowing Him more, of course, to love Him more. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of Thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of Thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created. Let us pray. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by that same spirit we may be truly wise and ever enjoy his consolation through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I want to begin by just imagining a conversation between a good Catholic and a very good Protestant. They're good friends. And the beauty of being good friends and both being people who know each other, loves Christ, they can have very frank exchanges without hurting each other's feelings. And finally, in this relationship, the Protestant friend was able to turn to the Catholic, and let's just say it's right in this area that this is happening, and he's able to finally start asking him about all this stuff with Mary and the saints. And he, and he looks at him and says, what, what is it with you all? Why do you do this? He said, I walk into your church. You, ha you had me come to Mass once, and I walk into your church, and there is this huge statue of Mary. And what's more, there's a lady putting flowers in front of it, and there's a lady lighting candles in front of it. Aren't you worshiping idols here? You have images of Mary and images of the saints all over the place in your churches. Aren't you just lifting them way too high and aren't you kind of worshiping them? And the guy could say to him, what do you really mean? It's, it's, it's so prominent in your churches. And he responds, well, what, what do you mean? You mean that we, we build 
beautiful churches and we have, we have them prominently featured in our churches. Yeah, that's true. But maybe you should go across the river, go across the Memorial Bridge, and look at that huge temple. And talk about singling out one person. There's a guy seated on a throne. And tons of people have to walk up these steps and come before him and see this image. And he says, no, I, I, I know exactly. That, you know what that is. Come on. We're just honoring Abraham Lincoln with that. We're not worshiping Abraham Lincoln. We're just honoring him. He did great things, and we're just remembering the great things that he did for our country. And, of course, the response is, well, that's what we're doing with the saints. They did great things. We're not worshiping them. We're honoring them. We're giving them honor when we do this. And then they'll say, but you pray to them. You ask them for stuff. You say, help me out with this. You say, pray for me. Save me from this. And the, and the response would be, hey, the Catholic asked him, would you pray for me? I've got this situation. And would you get some good people to pray for me? Oh, yeah. And the guy goes, yeah, I know some really holy people who will pray for you. I know some good prayers. <laughs> and he says, that's exactly what we do. We just call upon the people that are in heaven. We know they're good. We know they're holy. And we know where they are. So we know they've gotten near. And so we ask them to pray for us. That's all we're doing there. That's all we're doing with that. I think oftentimes, though, people mistake our honoring the saints and our lifting them so high. I think really because there's a poverty of understanding, and specifically a poverty of understanding metaphysics. And that's just a fancy way of saying a poverty of understanding being. A poverty of understanding how things are. We as Catholics, part of our tradition is a tradition of active contemplation, thought, the use of reason, fides quens intellect, the use of reason to penetrate the truths of faith. God says, I am who I am. I am the one who always is. He revealed that to Moses. It's been passed on to us, and we contemplate it. And we understand that God is different. Not just slightly different, not by degree. He's of a whole different way. So different that when I say I am, and I say he is, the am and the is, the being there, the verb, is a completely different verb. Really. Because my being's finite, his is infinite. We understand that. It's a part of how we look at things. We understand that God is of a whole different order. And because we understand that, there's a freedom. We know that he has an infinite being. We know he's eternal. And we have this kind of, we penetrated it deeper. And it's part of our tradition, and really part of everybody that's part of the church. We have this in us in some way, so that we don't fear to see the greatness in the saints. We have no fear of elevating people like Mary and saying, wow, she's amazing. Because we know what she is. She's still just a creature. But what an amazing, amazing gift God has given us in her. What an amazing thing he's done when he created her and poured his grace into her. Which brings up that other point. We also see the saints as the work of God. As beautiful as we think nature is, as beautiful as a sunset is, the life of a saint is so much more beautiful. So much more of a beautiful work of God. And that, that's always in us. If you look at the prayers of the Mass, especially with our new translation, it's wonderful. We, we, we say very, sometimes very explicitly, when we glorify the saints or when we glorify the angels, we glorify you, Lord, because we see your handiwork in them. 
What a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so tonight I want to speak about our relationship with Mary and the saints. The first thing is we don't worship them. We do venerate them, though. And we have a very special veneration that we give to Our Lady. But venerating is different than worshiping. We honor them. We remember them. We hold them in highest regard in our heart and in our mind. And we lift them up. We lift them up as examples, which brings the second part of what we do as saints. We look to their example. We try to emulate them. We use their lives as guides. Because as I said, the saints are the Gospels written in lives. We can see our Lord working in different times, in different places, with different personalities, and from that we can gain example, we can gain guidance. But most important from the saints, we seek their help and their prayers. The sharing of spiritual goods, the giving, of the helping of each other in the journey of faith. They intercede for us as we ask their aid. They pray for us. And we can take them as patrons and guides. They look out for us as a patron, and they can guide us. All of this reality of our relationship with those who enjoy the beatific vision, those in the happiness and glory of heaven, we call that the communion of saints. Communion of saints refers oftentimes to just the saints in heaven, but in reality, it refers to all those united desiring a state of grace and living in a state of grace in the church. And that, that includes everyone in the church. And I'm going to speak to that in a little bit. But this reality of the relationships that we have with these people, I'm going to focus on next week, kind of the specifics of the reality, our particular relationship with Our Lady, our particular relationship with St. Joseph, who is a special, another very special saint, and then our particular relationship with variety of saints. That's what I'll focus on next week. But this week I just want to try to penetrate more deeply and help us understand this whole reality of the communion of saints, how it fits into God's providential plan of salvation. First and foremost, we have to realize that what I just said, what I just said is not something I just made up, that we venerate the saints and hold them up, that we use them and emulate their lives, and that we ask for their help and assistance and their intercession and prayers. That stuff, that I, those three things that I just said, that's part of the faith. Okay, that's not something... That is, that is optional. That's part of the faith. We say it's de fide. It's of the faith. It's part of the deposit of faith. It's part of the revealed truth of what the Catholic Church is. Part of the revealed truth that comes to us, of course, through Scripture and tradition, it comes to us together in those two realities, it's part of the revealed truth of what God does. And we have absolute certitude about this because the Church teaches it. The Church teaches it unequivocally, has always taught it unequivocally, there's certitude that this is part of God's plan. Our relationship with the saints is part of his plan. He willed this to be part of the way in which he saves us. And he formed the communion of saints precisely for this reason, for the salvation of souls. Therefore, it's not an optional thing. It's not an extra thing like power windows and a sunroof on a car. I don't pay attention to the saints. No, it's, it's part of what we are as a church. It's operative in the whole reality of salvation. And of course, what I just said, that this is taught by the church unequivocally, is the strongest argument for the communion of saints. Now, in most cases, we say that arguments of authority are not very good arguments, right? You always hear that. Unless, of course, we're talking about a revealed religion. And when 
the truth is revealed. And of course, the strongest argument is to say, God said so through his church. And God says so through his church. But because it's God doing this, because God has revealed that he has done this, we also know something else. It's the best conceivable thing that could have been done. Because God did it, it is the best. And I don't mean he did it and it becomes the best. No, because he did it, it is the best. And this is a reasonable conclusion. It's not as absurd as you might think me saying at first. It's, it's the best because of who he is and what he can do and what he desires. God had limitless possibilities. He's omnipotent. All-powerful, omniscient, sees all in the eternal now. And he knows what is best and he knows how to do it. Knows what is best and he knows how to do it. And furthermore, he loves us. And he says how much he loves us in so many ways. He says that even if a mother forgets her child, I love you. We know that he loves more. He loves each of us more than all the mother's love of the world combined. More tenderly, more powerfully, he loves more than that. It's, it's, it's hard for us to fathom, but it's the truth. And just so we know it even clearer, in the fullness of Revelation, of course, he gives us himself on the cross. He desires our salvation. He desires our happiness. And he knows how to do it. And this is part of how he did it. His way is best. And it's not that he had to do it this way. And it's not that circumstances dictated that he must do it this way. He could have accomplished our salvation any way he wanted. And he included the communion of saints in that. In fact, we really say he could have accomplished our salvation without becoming incarnate. We know that it's the best and most beautiful thing that could have ever been done. But he didn't have to do it. But in his providence, he chose this. He chose to become incarnate, and he chose to form the communion of saints, and he chose to give us the saints as our aids here on earth. And therefore, we'll see that the Creator and Savior, our Lord and God, made this to fit us. Or we can even say it the other way, we're made to fit this. The communion of saints, the relationships that are in the communion of saints, fit us and we fit them. God knows what he made. He knows how to make what he made happy. He knows how we're supposed to function and he does things in accord with who we are and what we are and how we'll be fulfilled and that's exactly what he did. And this is how I want to present the communion of saints today from this perspective. A reality formed by God as part of his loving plan of providence to save humanity in a way that's consonant with our nature, that gives us aid and comfort here on earth. And please, God, when we meet our reward and see him in heaven, will even heighten our delight and joy of the bliss that we experience there. That's how we should see the communion of saints. We first begin from a perspective, we believe it. When we Catholics try to penetrate the faith more deeply, we begin first by saying, I believe. I know it's true. Now, help me to see. Lord, that I may see. Let me see more deeply. Of course, our Lord gives us a mind, and he gives us concepts. And we use our mind, and we, we penetrate those concepts more deeply. Not to say that we ever get to the end and the conclusions of things. We always realize that God is far greater than anything we could ever conceive, far bigger than any concept. But at the same time, we, we grow in more and more understanding. 
And the first truth that we have to, as we're, as we're looking at, the first thing we look at, it's the beginning of the title of the lecture. One mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Of course, Jesus is the one who saves. And he does this in his Paschal mystery. As Peter says, the beginning of Acts, he says, And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In the fourth chapter of Acts, Peter says this. And then recently, the church's magisterium, in a beautiful document, Dominus Jesus, gives it kind of a, a, a dogmatic formula. And they say this, It must therefore be firmly believed as a truth of the Catholic faith that the universal salvific will of the one and triune God is offered and accomplished once for all in the mystery of the incarnation, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. Christ and his sacrifice stand at the center of all things. Christ and his sacrifice are what unites man to God and God to man, opens the gates of heaven, purifies us of our sins, and gives us a new chance. It's what turns everything right side up. He did it. He did it. He offered himself. He did it with his power. And so we understand this is who did it. This is what did it. The who and the what that saves is answered. But we need to look at, and this is where it gets interesting, we need to look at how he applies this salvation to humanity. What does our Lord do? Start his own television network? First invent TV, cable, satellite, and start reaching people? No, he doesn't. Does he even stick around very long? Forty days, not very long. He establishes his church to accomplish this. He establishes the church to apply his salvation to the world. He animates it with the Holy Spirit, of course, and endows it with a power to proclaim the full truth of the gospel throughout the ages, without losing anything, the full truth of the gospel of who he is throughout the ages, and to infallibly guide people in its way in all times and circumstances. And he gives them the sanctifying power as well through the sacramental order to bring humanity into contact with his saving act in the Paschal Mystery. At its height, of course, the sacramental order in the Eucharist. But our Lord formed a church to do this. He doesn't do it without the help of the church. And we see this prefigured in the whole history of salvation. When our Lord goes and sets about to write things after the fall, what does he do? He first forms the people of God. He takes Abraham, and he forms a relationship with him. And, and some of the most shocking passages to people in the Old Testament is the dialogue that God comes into with Abraham. There is a relationship. We can even call it a friendship. As stunning as that is, God makes friends with a man, with a name, and starts a community from him. And then again, he comes to Moses and more deeply forms his people. And he forms this people, the people of God, through the ages, through the prophets, entering into relationship with them, forming a community, forming a covenant with them. And he forms this people first to bear his message, and then even more, that he can become incarnate amongst them, that he can come with them. 
And then when we see Christ, and we see his mission, the first thing Christ really does in his mission when he reaches out after, after he goes into the desert, after, after the uh, baptism and going in the desert, he calls the disciples to himself. It's the first thing he does. The first ones that see him with John, John points him up, Behold the Lamb of God, they come up to him, and he says, Come and see, come be with me. Have a meal with me. Get to know me. Be with me. And then along the shore, I will make you fishers of men. Come follow me. And again with Matthew sitting at the tax collector's desk counting his money. Get up. Come with me. And he forms the disciples. And he shows them things he doesn't show anybody else. His miracles like walking on the water, some of the resurrections, many things. The transfiguration that some of them saw. And he explains the parables to them when he doesn't explain necessarily to everyone else. And he tells them some of the deepest things about what he's going to do. He tells them of his death, his resurrection, and why he must do it. And then even more, he brings them with himself into the upper room, washing their feet, showing them the example of service and love, and then, then the Eucharist, and telling them to do it in his memory giving them the power to represent his sacrifice again. And we can actually say this, that all the time our Lord spent preaching and wandering around Galilee and Judea, he probably spent the lion's share of his time forming the disciples. That was the major part of his kind of missionary work, was informing these men into a group. And of course he ends his time here on earth by commissioning them. As thou didst send me, he says to the Father, as thou didst send me, so I have sent them into the world. He says this in his last teaching in the Gospel of John. And of course we know that famous scene in Matthew right at the end. Go forth and preach the Gospel to all, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then in the early church, we see them fulfilling this commission. I quoted earlier about there is no other name besides Jesus Christ that will save. That's Peter at Pentecost. Right off the bat, once we see them animated, quickened by the Spirit, so to speak, they go out and immediately they start spreading, applying what Jesus handed them. Applying it, teaching and sanctifying. And then even more so, and it's beautiful to see this, the conversion of Paul. The conversion of Paul is a very interesting, beautiful story. Notice that Paul is along the road, and Christ does intervene very directly, doesn't he? And he strikes Paul down, and Paul goes blind, and he goes, what's the next thing that happens? Is that the done deal? Does he explain everything to Paul? No. Go to a house and wait for someone to come see you. Why? And, and our Lord appears to Ananias. I like Ananias because he doesn't show up. We never call him Saint Ananias because the only time we see him is he's reluctant. He's the reluctant parish priest of Damascus. Bad section, too. And, and, and he says, I know this guy. He's bad news. You'd think when the Lord appears to you, you, you wouldn't necessarily argue with him. <laughs> But he's, he's doing that. He's like, he's bad news. I could get really hurt. Uh, uh, I was like, no, I've got plans for him. Not as much, not really plans for you, but I've got plans for him. <laughs> but Ananias, eventually, he goes. But what, what's interesting there? An what does Ananias do? Ananias baptizes him. In other words, our Lord was not going to bring Paul into the fullness of his grace, the fullness of his church, without the church. In other words, he left it, not just, and he didn't, it didn't have to be Peter, it didn't have to be Andrew, it didn't have to be John, he left it to kind of this non-entity, 
who was serving in kind of a nowhere, you know, out of the way place, but he was probably a presbyter of the church, and he had him baptize him. It was through him that Paul was brought into the church. And this is something amazing. As incredible as it was for Paul to be struck down and blinded and spoken to by Christ on the way, baptism was a much more powerful thing that God did to him. Because baptism changed him into a son of God. That's pretty amazing that our Lord saved us. Now we understand maybe what our Lord said, and greater things than this will you do in my name. Well, it makes you puzzled, doesn't it? When we realize the sacramental order is Christ's salvation, is Christ's power bringing people into eternity, that's what Christ left for Ananias to do. He kind of primed the pump for him. And so this is what our Lord does. He forms the church. And many things can be said about this. But for our purposes, I want to concentrate on just two basic truths that emerge from Christ's establishment of the church. The first is this. Human instrumentality in the work of salvation. That's a fancy way of saying that God accomplishes great things through people. God imbues them with grace, enters into a partnership with them, and does amazing things with people in the church. And the second thing is this. The interdependent communion of those following Christ within the church and working out the salvation of the world and of each other. That's the second thing. Humanity is capable of God, and in the church that capacity gets used. When people are under the influence of grace, God does great things in them. Now I know that regardless of what any human being ever does, if he, if he fails, if he falls, if he resists God, that is still being done for the greater glory of God. There's nothing we can do to diminish the glory of God. Yet at the same time, man can say yes. Man can allow God to live in him. And when that happens, amazing things take place. This is really what grace is. God living in man and imbuing him with his nature. Elevating his capacities. Elevating even his vision for what's possible giving him the power to love. There's a perfection of harmony between God and man that makes man more of himself than he ever was before and more than he could have ever dreamed of being. In the union of wills in love that is man joined to God, man can then love with God's will and share in his desires and share in his capacity to save. At its height, it can be called almost a connatural action with God. You act with God. Some of the great saints under the influence of the gifts of the Holy Spirit are acting with God. Maybe we have flashes of that even in our own lives. And they bear much fruit. People are converted. Just look at the life of St. Paul. Look at who he was and look at what he was able to do. He wrote inspired epistles. He wrote what God intended him to write to reveal to us the truth of who he is. He preached and brought countless people to the Lord. He was tireless and undaunted in the face of so many things. You remember that passage of Paul where he talks about all the beatings, whippings, and, and, and stonings that he's taken. And still, he was undaunted and kept going through, and joyfully so. Joyful throughout, and joyful even as he wept for people's hard hearts 
who wouldn't convert. And in fact, I'd say this in truth. We can probably all, in some way, trace our faith. We have to trace our faith pretty directly back to Paul. His conversion of peoples and almost a, a straight train of missionaries that came from him over thousands of years, even to ourselves today. At the same time that God imbues and, and sends someone on a mission and enters his partnership with him, the person remains who he is, unique with a great personality, with the traits. In fact, becomes even more himself. Unique doesn't mean flawed and sinful. Oftentimes we'll say that he's a unique person. <laughs> and we think we haven't detracted when we said that. Uh, and, and, but, but, the, but the truth is that no true uniqueness comes with sanctity. There's more variety in saints than there are sinners. There's only seven deadly sins. And God himself is infinite. Seven ways of saying no to God, and there are billions, maybe trillions, for each person, ways of saying yes to God in a particular way in which he calls that person. And the person becomes more himself. And in that, through the beautiful variety in which God created and the variety of people that God creates, some, some people appeal to more people than others. Some personalities go with others more. You look at the different apostles, they kind of split up. And they certainly had different personalities, didn't they? Look at this between Paul and Peter and John. Very different personalities. And the type of people that would have been attracted to them and followed them, they're different. Now, that's kind of part of the beauty of how God created things and how God plays things out. And we see this throughout history. We see it throughout history with the saints, with the various religious orders and the charisms that come into the church, the charisms that still come into the church. We see it played out kind of even on local levels. Some people like this priest better than that priest and are fed by this one more than this one. We see it played out in so many different ways. And we see it in our own lives. And even more importantly, though, we see this reality of God using people, this reality of God using instruments to bring about a salvation. We see it in our own lives, hopefully. First and foremost, most of us in our families. Where would we be if our parents did not bring us to the font for baptism? Where would we be if we weren't taught the faith at a young age? Now, some weren't. And, but I'm sure those who weren't probably are sitting there in their minds remembering someone, or maybe more than one person, who God used to bring them to him. God inspires and uses people to bring, bring us to him. Our, our salvation is kind of interconnected that way. We see in that way. And we help each other. Even still today, I'm sure there's so many days that we see how God has helped us through our friends, through our neighbors, through our families. And hopefully we've done it. And we might even know we've done it. That's a beautiful thing. And that brings us to our second point. The church as a communion of people bound in a relationship of charity through Christ. In Christ we have a relationship of charity. This is God living in each and binding us together in his love and moves us to love and aid one another within the church. The grace of salvation is not an impersonal energy force like a tractor beam that gets us up to heaven despite ourselves. It's God himself. You say God lives in us. It's God who establishes this. And in this, he establishes a new relationship between himself and man. A filial relationship. We enter into the relationship of the Trinity in the unity of the spirit of love 
we are one with Christ in calling God our Father. And we call him our Father because now he is in Christ. He is our Father. And I had a quote I was going to read, but just it simply suffices us to say that we can all pray the Our Father now, and our Lord commands us to do it. Taught by the Savior's command, informed by the divine teaching, we dare to say, Him, the maker of all things, is our Father. And this is a familial bond. But you know what the corollary of it is? Simple. If He's our Father, everyone else are our brothers and sisters. That there's a familial bond. And the apostles from the very beginning call them brothers and sisters. They speak to each other that way. A couple days ago, we had Augustine in a homily speaking of the use of the term brothers and sisters for Christians, for those who shared in the reality of the life of Christ. And this is, a, But it's a deeper connection than we can ever imagine of any human family. Paul calls it the body of Christ. St. Paul uses this term and he doesn't even say, now we say the mystical body of Christ. But St. Paul didn't. He just said the body of Christ. You are him. He's head, and you're the body, and we're all part of it. Bodies are interdependent, sharing in, in the life. And this is where we come back to this reality that there's a sharing, not just of the things we can see, like this guy told me about Jesus and got me to go to church again. Great. But maybe there was someone else somewhere who was woken up in the middle of the night and prayed for anybody who needed it, and you were that person. This is the sharing of spiritual goods that's within the church. And this is even the more powerful thing. And there's a deep mystery in the idea of intercession. Of course, we know what's behind intercession, what's behind sacrifice on behalf of others, is, is a union with Christ. Because we're part of Christ, we join our prayer and sacrifice. To, of course, his prayer and sacrifice on Calvary, and because of that joint union with him, it bears fruit, converts hearts, it produces things we could never even imagine. Maybe one of the joys of heaven, please God, we get there, is that we'll actually see the people who prayed for us when we needed it, who we didn't even know. Maybe someone just saw us walk down the street and said a prayer for us, or the people we prayed for, and we helped them. The sharing of gifts, the sharing of prayer, and of course, what is the most effective thing we can ever do? Pray! All we can do is just pray. That's a big all. That's not a small thing. When you think about it, the most important thing is salvation of souls, which takes a conversion of heart. That's something that I don't have the capacity to convince someone to do. Only the Holy Spirit can do it. And only our prayer is, is, is supremely effective. There's a beautiful book called The Soul of the Apostolate. And another book, Eugene Boylan wrote a book about the priest's way to God. One of the points he makes to priests, he says, listen, if you're not praying and people are still coming to God, you know what's probably happening? Someone else is praying for you. And you think you're doing it, but it's, it's the fruit of someone else's prayer. Prayer is a powerful thing. And we see this prayer in the, in the earliest days of the church. First, our Lord does it. He says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. He says that to Peter. He prays for Peter. I prayed for you, Peter. And we see other moments where our Lord prays. And then we see it in the Acts of the Apostles when Peter first goes to jail. Peter's dragged into jail. So Peter was kept in prison. And the next day he's going to be brought out and executed. Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And then we know what happens. The angel comes to get up Peter and walks him out. And it's beautiful because Peter finds his way to Mark's house 
the very night when Herod was about to bring him out. And he realized that he gets brought out. He realizes this. And he goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. They were keeping vigil and praying for Peter, and he was saved. And again, we see it throughout the history of the church and in our own lives. Even today, what did, the, what, what did we just get done doing in the fortnight? Freedom. And what was the major thrust? Not to go protest, not even just to talk about things. Pray, pray. Pray for a conversion of hearts. Pray for a change. Sacrifice. Our bishop told us, sacrifice for this. And what do we often do? Pray for me, please. I hear that all the time as a priest. Please, pray for me. Yeah, I'll pray for you. Pray for yourself too, you know? But pray for me. People always say it. We experience the power of prayer. This has always been a part of the church. We pray for each other. And the holier the person is, we think, the more we want that person praying for us, don't we? Right? <laughs> So we see someone, that's a prayer, I want him praying for me. Right? And, and now here's the question. Does it continue? When a holy person dies, does it continue? Does this whole reality of what I talked about, the, the, the interdependence and people being used as instruments of salvation, is that gone? Is that wiped away once, once someone dies? Does this bond break when people die and go to heaven? Are we still brothers and sisters and members of the one body with them? Do they cease to be able to pray for us when they're in the sight of God? Can those who loved and helped their brothers and sisters on earth no longer love and help their brothers and sisters from heaven? Are they no longer our friends? And do we forget them and what they have done. Should we forget them and what they have done? Can we still look to them for inspiration and guidance? Can we still be attracted to a particular person who showed Christ in their life and take that person as our helper, our patron and guide in the faith? Of course, we know the answer to these questions. Of course, they don't. They don't break away. There's not a destruction of the bond of love by death for those united in Christ. We say it right in the funeral rite. It says, for us, the, the bonds are changed, not broken. Changed, not broken. And we know that so many saints have said that St. Dominic as he's in the catechism, St. Dominic as he dies, they quote him in the catechism, don't be afraid, I can help you a whole lot more where I'm going, my brothers, as the founder of the Dominicans, I can help you a whole lot more where I'm going than if I stay here with you. And Therese, the little flower, says, I will do much greater good in heaven than I could ever do on earth. That tells us something. That the relationship remains. And this is why we speak of the church which is inseparable. The indivisible body of Christ having three aspects. We, there's the church here on earth. We call it the church militant. The pilgrim church journey. But then there's also the church in purgatory, the church suffering, the holy souls suffering in purgatory. They're also part of the church. We help them. And they, in some ways, can help us. And then, of course, there's the church, the largest part of the church, which is the church triumphant, church in heaven. And they can help us. They certainly can help us. All three are connected by the bond of the Holy Spirit, who is love. Notice that the bond is a bond of love. It's not some sort of 
distant thing. Like, that's corporate up there. We're just kind of the branch offices down here, and they send orders down to us. No. It's a familial connection, a familial reality. They continue to love and care for their brothers and sisters in Christ, in heaven, just as they did on earth, except more effectively. Remember one buddy of mine said, you know, I'm kind of looking forward to John Paul when he passes, because then I can pray to him. <laughs> so we'll hold on until he gets beatified. And we did, and there he is. And in the same vein, we can also see that they can continue to intercede for us. We know that Christ intercedes for us in heaven. That's what he continues to do. In the first letter of John, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That's what John says. And then again in Hebrews, for Christ has entered into a sanctuary not made with hands, a copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Does it seem that the saints who are part of him could join in his prayer? Of course. In truth, we already do this. At the Mass, and any time we pray, we join our prayers with His. Our prayer is in union with Him. And of course, the prayers continue in heaven. What is more, in Christ, the saints can take a particular interest in individual people, in groups, when they call upon them, and in areas in which they act as patrons. We'll probably discover new patron saints when we get to heaven saints that took interest in various people and various things and helped them. And we can pray for them to guide us to Christ. We can let them become mentors. And that's what I'll talk about next week more. But they can really, the real people who in Christ take real love and interest in us and we can know them and they know us and they pray for us and they help us and in Christ they nudge us along our way and this is part of how Christ mediates his life. He mediates his life through the saints. It's part of how he does it because he knows we're so different and he knows we need different ways of approaching him. That's why I said at the beginning, the saints are the gospels written in lives. We can see Christ living again in various times, places, and circumstances because we can see them in the saints. Famous story of Mother Teresa. Lots of great Mother Teresa stories, right? But this is a beautiful one in which... At the end of a man's life, she, she asks him to become a Christian and whether he will be baptized. And his answer is, is, is profound and beautiful. He said, I'll accept Jesus if he's like you. Isn't that amazing? Because, you know, flip that around, but he was seeing Christ in her. So that's an example of how it works and, and why we love the saints. We love the saints because we love Jesus. They're not a distraction from Jesus. They bring us to him. And again, stepping back, they're real people. If they really are real, they're not going to distract us from Jesus. If you're really asking St. Joseph for his help, what's he going to do? Bring you to his son. If you're really asking Our Lady to intercede for you and to help you, what's she going to do? Bring you to her son. That's what they do. From St. Philomena to St. Rocco to all the way through. That's what all of them do. They all bring us there. And finally, our part, we're called to remember them. We're called to honor them. I mean, it's so obvious that we have to honor Our Lady. Our Lord did. It's so obvious that we have to honor St. Joseph. Our Lord did. 
It, it's part of the whole familial reality. You hang pictures of your grandparents, hopefully, in your home, right? And you tell stories about your grandparents. Why? Because they're your grandparents, because you love them, and because they were neat people, hopefully. But it's the same in the church. If we're really a family, these are our people. We should feel so comfortable with the saints. We should love hearing their stories, because they're ours. They're our family members. They're our real family. And that's why we put pictures of them up. And that's why we do little things like give flowers to Our Lady. It's not like we're killing cattle in front of her. We're giving her flowers because that's what you do for your mother. Right? That's what you do for your mother. We're not worshiping. We're honoring in a very natural, human way. I want to make one final point here. And I haven't really talked about kind of the history of this stuff. But what we do know is this. Uh, the, the first kind of documentary evidence that come up about devotion to the saints on, on, in writings that we have, for example, images, the oldest image of Our Lady is from the, about the year 150 in Rome, in, in Santa Priscilla, the um, catacombs there, image of Madonna and child. If there's a third century graffiti near the tomb of St. Peter, St. Peter, pray for us. And then the same time, third century, they found a scrap of papyra which has a prayer to Our Lady. We fly to your patron, the Holy Mother of God. You know, we'll, we'll end with that prayer. Um, what I want to say is, yes, these things, they found them, you know, 200s, 150. These are the oldest record we have. But the one thing is this, it's simple. These things, are when they came out, when we have record of them, were not controversial. They were just what people did. The earliest days of the church and the earliest instances we have of people having devotion to the saints and asking for their prayers was just par for the course. Normal. It's what people did. It was part of what the church was from the earliest days. That's a very profound and strong argument. It's just what they did. And we have no documentary evidence that said St. John prayed to Mary after she was assumed into heaven and asked for her help when he was in a tough spot. But he probably did. We can guess he did. Because everybody else, as soon as we see Christians and, and hear about it, they're doing it. It's just part of what it means to be a Catholic Christian. And that's kind of where I, I'd like to end it there. Um, by saying, hopefully, we see this as a part of our faith, as a part of the church, as a part of what God gave us, and we should see it as beautiful. That, that is, I look out here, and there's a variety of people with a variety of personalities, and each one of us have, our, have the saints that we like and that help us, hopefully. And if you don't, make some friends with them. Make some friends with the saints, and, and they will be there to help. God gave us a beautiful gift and he's never happier than when we're using it. When we turn to his saints and ask for their prayers and ask for their help, it, on the contrary, he's not jealous. He's filled with joy to see his children living together in the type of union that he had in mind. I'll end with a prayer and then I'll take questions if that's all right. Okay? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. This is the prayer, some of you who know it can join in. Uh, this is the prayer that was found on that papyrus called the Subtum. Uh, we fly to your patronage, O Holy Mother of God. Despise not our prayers and our necessities, but ever deliver us from all danger, O glorious and blessed Virgin Mary. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much, Father. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Father. We're going to take a short break as we usually do. Um, I'm a convert to mm -hmm. Catholicism, and 
you all talk about the, well, we talk about the communion of saints. Now, there's supposed to be the judgment. So if we're going to be judged to decide who goes to heaven or hell, how are these people already in heaven? Okay, great question. Um, the church teaches that there are, there's the particular judgment of each person. When you die, you go to heaven, and, and, and you have your particular judgment. On the last day, you know, in the eschaton, when our Lord comes back, everyone will, will regain their bodies, so the resurrection of the body and life everlasting, and that's when we have the general judgment where, where everything will be separated and the whole world will be made anew. Okay? So that each person goes to a particular judgment at the moment after he dies. Thank you. Um, I have a question that I find difficult to answer. Is, is it the church's position that the saints are omnipresent and that's why they can hear our prayers? No, no, they're not. That's, that's why I kept saying, if you notice during the talk, and you can't stop and hit every point, but during the talk I said, in Christ, they share in, in God. God lets them share. They don't have the capacity for omnipresence and omniscience, but they, since they share in Christ in, in a deep way in heaven, uh, God allows them to, to see Probably not everything, maybe, every, I don't, you know, we don't know. I could speculate about what the capacity for them to know and see. But certainly, God allows them to hear the prayers and to pay attention to, to people uh, through him and in him, you know, by his power and capacity. So there would be a sharing in God's omniscience and his om omnipotence and his omnipresence. But they wouldn't be omnipresent in themselves. They would have a share, a small share, a finite share, which would be very big for us. <laughs> Um, if only the Holy Spirit can convert a heart into um, to salvation, mm -hmm. can we still pray for them, pray to the Holy Spirit directly, or do we still invoke the intercession of the Blessed Mother and the saints? Yeah, I, what, next week I'm going to talk about Our Lady's relationship to the Holy Spirit, actually, and all the saints' relationship to the Holy Spirit. But there is, in, in, in prayer and in intercession, I say the Holy Spirit does it. We know that the you know, Holy Spirit is inseparable from Father and Son. It's God who does things. And prayers to God are effective. We know that. First of all, because he wants us to pray to him. So that, no, we can continue to invoke saints for the conversion of souls, Our Lady for the conversion of souls, and, of course, directly invoke the Holy Spirit, all of those things. Um, in a supernatural state, there's a naturalness about doing that. You know, there's a beautiful naturalness about doing that. Okay? Any... Yes, we have a, a question coming from John in Arlington, which makes me ask John, why didn't you come out tonight? <laughs> I wish there was a way to like cut out all video for like you know a hundred mile radius. Anyways, okay, John asks, why did the Protestants abandon the practice of prayer to the saints? I guess maybe he's asking, is there something rooted in Luther and Calvin yeah, and Zwingli's thought? It, it's, it's very interesting that I mean I, I I'm not I'm not an expert on this and I didn't prepare something on this, but. John Henry Newman has things to say about this, and he speaks about how they said that the saints were distracting from God, from Christ. And they said this, a devotion to Our Lady was distracting from Christ. Um, and maybe there were some abuses in the cult of the saints and in the uh, veneration of Our Lady. Maybe there were some abuses in that. But he also points out this, and there's a beautiful passage in, in John Henry's writings about the different titles of Our, of our Lady. Plus, John Henry Newman writes about the Tower of David, that title of Our Lady. Kind of mysterious title. Why is the Tower of David? And he goes in to explain that. But one of the points he makes in it is that, that Our Lady was like, the, the Tower of David was a linchpin fortress of Jerusalem. If it held, Jerusalem held. If it fell, Jerusalem fell. And he said, Our Lady's the Tower of David because it's 
it's devotion to Our Lady and a recognition of her dignity and who and what she is that keeps, that keeps the, the reality of Christ in the fore of the Christian mind. That keeps us orthodox on Christ, so this is the way we'd say it. And he said that when you drop Our Lady, everything falls away. And he says, it's interesting that the very places that got rid of Our Lady and the saints in order to focus on Jesus are the same ones that are really already jettisoning the faith in Jesus as the incarnate God and making him something else, something less, some sort of do-gooder reformer. You know? So that's, you know, that's one of the things, that's what happened, uh, that they, they got rid of the, the cult of the saints, the, the, the devotion to the saints, in order to focus more on Jesus. But oddly enough, it's had the exact opposite effect. Father Hanley, to continue that thought, mm-hmm. um, I heard it said recently that in the past, the church defended icons. Mm-hmm. And now today... Icons are defending the church. Could you comment a little bit about the the reality of that when we, you know, as Catholics, can point to things like holy images that are are written like icons, but also to things like the the Shroud of Turin or the Veil of Monopello as reawakening this this spirit of of devotion? Yeah, I I would, um, I'm sure there's other people that comment about iconography, in fact, in here, they can comment about iconography more than I could. But uh, what, what I would say is just is in a simple way, icons and sacred art, uh, all sacred art, is very incarnational in its principle. And again, like I said at the beginning, how God works, how God works with us, through us, and knows what we are, because he made us, and he knows how to reach us. And one of the beautiful ways he reaches us, of course, is through the senses, through the eyes, or you know, the eyes are probably the highest of all the senses. We, we consider them kind of the highest of all the senses, and, and in many ways the most powerful of all the senses. They move us before we even realize it. Then we also think about auditory hearing, and so all of those things are part of the incarnational reality where Christ became tangible and, and still reaches us through tangible things. And 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 the beauty of art and icons, of course, are, are analogs of God and our windows to him. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I, w- I would say that um, in an age of kind of madness where logic and, 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 and argumentation is not very effective, beauty still can be. The, the beauty of sacred music and the beauty of sacred art can, can, can break through. Thank you very much, Father. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.